Rosenberg on WHMP. This is indeed Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I am Buzz Eisenberg. And it is Friday, so we have our regular weekly time with Max Page, who is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. Our segment has traditionally been called Your State You. Can we have some walk-up music for Max? There we go. Max Page, thank you so much for being with us today. I really want to get your reaction to what has happened. A lot of news about MCAS in the last few days. So bring us up to date, if you would, where this debate stands and what the reality will continue to be or not continue to be with regard to use of high-stakes testing here in Massachusetts in our high schools. Max? Sure. Thank you, Bill and Buzz. Good morning. Um, The the MCAS, which is our state standardized test, has been, uh, we have been, and many other groups have been very critical of it for, for many years. And there's uh, a new report out called Lessons Learned um, that is put out by the Citizens for Public Schools and a national organization called Fair Test. And, of course, the you know, we in the Math Teachers Association so helped and supported this and think it's a terrific report. And basically it shows that, you know, here we are a quarter century of having used this test, and it has um, had some harmful effects and also not nearly, not achieved the goals that the, that was, that the, the makers of this test had. And so, for instance, uh, we find that this high school graduation requirement, which only eight states in the entire nation require, that you have to reach a passing score in this MCAS, it has sent thousands of students um, not graduating, even though they fulfill the rest of the requirements of the curriculum and the standards and their and their grades in classes. And that disproportionately hurts working-class students and students of color. And, you know, the whole goal of MCAS is, well, we'll, we'll document this and we'll, we'll document the scores, and then we will be able to narrow the, the gaps between the wealthiest and the least wealthy or different um, different groups by race and other demographics, and that hasn't happened. So we have this monstrous system, and we have this experiment for a quarter century, and it has really um, not, not ha- it's had detrimental effects and it's not had the positive effect that the Ed reformers promised it would. So we think there needs to be a change, and we have filed a bill called the Thrive Act to undo some of the damage and lead us towards a better assessment system. So, Max Page, I would like to understand better how we got to this place. Massachusetts, and I may have this history wrong, so correct me if I do, Massachusetts enacted and implemented MCAS, Massachusetts Comprehensive Assessment Survey, I think. Uh, Yes. And it was part of or of uh, uh, the No Child Left Behind, the federal statute, where I think, which I think uh, caused every state or almost every state to enact these standardized tests. And now Massachusetts, if I heard you correctly, is one of only eight states that use the test as a graduation requirement. How in life did progressive Massachusetts get to this point? Well, that is a good question. Um, there is a mistaken uh, dedication to keeping this graduation requirement on the part of some of the 
uh, ed reformers, that somehow this test and punish strategy is what helps our schools. And the evidence simply is not, is not there. One of the biggest myths is that somehow when we started the modern um, era of, of education, new policy, and funding starting in 1993, that somehow it was the testing that has advanced our schools in Massachusetts. And it is, it is simply not true, and it is uh, much clearer that when there has been investment in the schools, in the, in the teachers, in all educators, in classrooms, that that is what has made the difference. We actually saw an improvement across all kinds of levels, uh, all kinds of categories, graduation rates and other things in in our schools when there was substantial funding in the first decade after 1993. Then we leveled off, the state stopped really improving the funding, and that's when we started to seeing the growing gaps between different students and the declining achievement. So the funding is so clear, has been central to the advancement of our schools. The test and punish strategy, which is what uh, with, which what MCAS does, has not worked. I, I should note that part of MCAS is also to identify the quote-unquote failing district. And we have three districts that are currently um, under receivership. That is, the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education runs those districts. That's Holyoke near us, at Southbridge, and Lawrence. And they have been under um, receivership for anywhere from 5 to, to 12, uh, 10 years. And those districts, the whole idea was, oh, well, that the MCAS scores were so low, now we'll have the state take over and things will improve. And that's the opposite has happened. In some ways it has made, in many measures, it's made those districts worse. So the MCAS has had that pernicious effect as well. You, as I understand it, don't oppose the, the test per se as an assessment tool. You oppose it as a graduation requirement. Do I have that right, or am I overstating your position? Um, well, let's see. It's, all, it's not just the graduation requirement. It's also the way it, it plays a central role in potential takeovers of districts. And if you remember uh, last year, there was a threat that Boston would be taken over as well. You know, our largest school system in the state would be taken over um, by the state. With this Thrive Act, that's our bill to reform our assessment system, were to pass tomorrow, there would still be an annual test because that is a federal requirement, that there be an annual test from third grade through tenth grade. If our bill passed, there would be not an, there would be no graduation requirement. Rather, we would use our standards, our state, our fine, very strong state standards, and our educators to certify that students have made it through the curriculum of a public school. Um, and But the bill would also say, let's move to a better whole child assessment system. There's a lot of evidence in this new report by Citizens for Public Schools and Fair Test called Lessons Learned, uh, which they just they put out and had a had an event at the state house the other day, argues um, that the that the kind of skills that the MCAS measures are very limited and not really the ones that students need to succeed in a modern economy and society. And so we do want to move ultimately towards a fuller, better assessment system, not this narrow standardized test 
um, punitive uh, system. The part of MCAS that most disturbs me is how much time classroom teachers have to spend teaching students how to take a test as opposed to learning something useful and or that enhances their intellectual skills. Is that part of this argument as well? Absolutely, Bill. I mean, one of the the ironies is that uh, there's another group that came out with a report of, you know, one of the Democrats for Ed Reform, a very, one of these Ed Reform groups that's long supported testing, that long supported charter schools to privatize our public schools. In a report where they ostensibly are defending the MCAS, they list a whole series of problems that we agree with and that should be fixed, including far too much time is spent on uh, MCAS prep and taking the test. That if it's supposed to help educators in the classrooms, why do we receive the scores the next year after the kids have moved on? Um, there's a whole series of things. They even recognize the disparate impact on students of color and working class students. So there's actually a growing consensus that we need an overhaul of the system. Obviously, we in the MTA think that, and, and Citizens for Public Schools and Fair Test and a dozen other groups believe that the system needs to be overhauled in a more dramatic way. But there is a growing sense consensus, even on those the right wing, that we need to fix things. This oh, system. Okay, Max Page, last question. Is this legislation, this proposed legislation that would free the Massachusetts schools from MCAS's strictures, is it apt to pass? Well, I don't like to make those predictions. What I would say, though, is that it, for is for years this was sort of off the table, any kind of discussion of this, uh, at least with the Baker administration and their business-type cronies who were running our education system. But in fact, um, this governor, Governor Healy, said throughout the campaign and continued to say, we need to relook at the, our assessment system. Similarly, so um, has uh, Senate President Spilka also indicated, let's take a new look at it. So what form that takes, whether we immediately dive into this bill or whether we examine this through a commission this coming few months, let, that's what we're pushing for, is that we get to a, a, a change and get to the task of reevaluating and reimagining this accountability system. Which makes me actually want to ask one last question. I can't let, quite let this go. Among the states that had passed these standardized tests in response to the federal mandate of no child left behind, have other states, because almost all of them, I think all of them actually enacted something similar to MCAS, have other states repealed their MCAS-like requirements? Well, that's, yes, Bill. I mean, just very recently, just a few years ago, 27 states required a standardized test, you know, a, a passing score on a standardized test to graduate. Now it's down to eight. Um, and so we are in a small minority of states and some of their ed reformers are holding on to it as a sort of a point of pride that somehow uh, it proves that we are more rigorous and that's uh, we think that's just silly we're going to leave it there we've been speaking with max page max page is the president of the massachusetts teachers association he's with us every friday we really appreciate your time every week thank you max thank you bill thanks buzz bye bye max
You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Where Were These Books Banned? Gender Queer by Maya Kobabe. All Boys Aren't Blue by George M. Johnson. Flamer by Mike Corrado. Not at Broadside, Broadside Bookshop, Northampton's long-standing independent bookstore on Main Street in Northampton since 1974. As Northampton's Pride Parade goes by Broadside this Saturday, Broadside will indeed feel enormous pride in being part of this community. Keep in mind, you can order any book on the Broadside website and have it delivered to your door or pick it up at the store. If only there were an indoor, climate-controlled farmer's market every day of the year. Oh, but there is. At State Street Fruit Store, Deli Wines and Spirits, farmers are bringing in their best from the field, orchards, and greenhouses every day. The best of the crop from wherever the crop is best, starting with fiddleheads and asparagus, all the way through berry season, corn, and into the root veggies, and hothouse stuff to get you through a New England winter. Plus, you can grab a bottle of Burgundy or bourbon. And since it's open every day of the year, it's like a farmer's market every day of the year. But no rain, no snow, no heat wave, and they open at 6.30 a.m. every day of the year. Those are farmer's hours. Since the market is inside the building, there's plenty of room to park in the lot. State Street Fruit Store Deli Wines and Spirits on the corner of State and Center in downtown Northampton. It's like an indoor farmer's market every day of the year. You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to WHMP.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We welcome to the show Thane Thompson, who is a teacher in Northampton and is not here in that role today. Uh, He's here because we want you, well, yeah, kind of here in that role today, because we want you to know about a fundraiser for the Literacy Project this weekend. Let's start with... For those of our listeners who don't know what the Literacy Project is, you volunteer with the Literacy Project? No, I'm a teacher. You're a teacher at the Literacy Project. Okay, got it. Thank you. Um, The Literacy Project, for those of our listeners who don't know, what is the Literacy Project? So the Literacy Project is a community-based organization, um, adult ed program that has, and we have sites in Northampton and Ware and Amherst and Greenfield and Orange. So one of the main things we do is we help people to get their high school equivalency diploma. But we also are there to help people with any educational needs um, and help to get them prepared for college and careers also. The high school equivalency diploma, high set previously, the GED? And still the GED, actually. Really? The GED, again, yes. In Massachusetts, people can choose between the high set or the GED, and they can actually mix and match those tests now. I I didn't know that. I thought the GED was a relic of... Bygone, a bygone era. Yeah. Is it the same? Is it a different test? Yeah, they changed the test and they kind of brought it up to date. So Massachusetts made it an option for people again. Multiple equivalencies going on here. Yes. <laughs> so let me ask you this. Uh, the Literacy Project has been part of this community for a long time. It has done spectacular work. We have had graduates and members of the Literacy Project community on the show many times. 
so impressive, so moving, and the, the skill sets that they develop because of what the Literacy Project does, I, it, it's just to me one of the most moving stories, the continuing stories here in Western Massachusetts. To take one minute and tell us how you got involved. How did you come to use your skills as a teacher and be, become part of the Literacy Project? Well, I went to Hampshire College here in the area, and I got interested in adult literacy education. And I was very fortunate when I graduated. I met Lindy Whiten, um, who was the founder of the Literacy Project. And this is back in 1990. Um, and uh, I didn't start working with the Literacy Project officially till 1997, but um, I've been working with them on and off since then, and um, just love the work so much. Okay, something is happening. The Literacy Project depends on the community for its financial support. What's happening this weekend? So on Sunday, we're having a 5K run and 2K walk called the Read Write Run at Mains Field in Florence. The, excuse me, the walk starts at 11 and the run starts at 11.30. And this is a benefit for the Literacy Project. Okay, how is it a benefit? How do we, how, I was about to say, how do we join the run, but how do we support the run itself? That's, that's a great question. So you can, um, there's uh, RunReg is the place to register for the run. Or say the run. that again? RunReg.com is a website. How do you spell reg? R, it's R-U-N-R-E-G.com. RunReg.com. Yeah. yeah. And that will get you to the page to make the contribution to either sign up for the the run and or to contribute to the run for the literacy project? Yes, then they're it, they're connected with Pledge Reg where you could make a, <laughs> <laughs> you can make a donation. So um, but you can also just go to the literacy project website which you can link from Run Reg or you can go right to literacyproject.org and you can make donations right from that site. And, also. and I take it if we just google literacy pro project we would get there yeah, pr pretty quickly. The first thing that will come up. So. Okay, terrific. Uh, any goals for, for this in terms of numbers of persons? Uh, you know, we this is our third one, and we've had about, you know, 120 participants. That's pretty good. It's been great, and we've been making money on it, and so we just want to keep it keep it going and keep our, our name out in the community through okay. this process. Okay, and again, the run starts where? It's at Mains Field. It starts and ends in Mains Field. It's a beautiful course, and there's a great walk, too. If you don't want to run, you can go do a 2K walk that lines up around the Sojourner Truth Memorial. Oh, the statue there, and, lovely, and On it's, Pine Street. Yeah, yep, exactly. And it's supposed to be a nice day, so you know, I guess if you didn't want to run or walk and you just wanted to come out and support the Literacy Project, you could do that. And just to see you there would be great. And if you wanted to bring some money, that would be great, also. And the Literacy Project, does it have a goal, financial goal for the for this run walk? You know, not not really. We, we have more educational goals than financial goals. Okay, <laughs> really appreciate it. Again, we can go to the Literacy Project. And that will take us to the registration page, or we can run, go to runreg.com. Yeah. See, you are a good teacher. <laughs> <laughs> you even taught Newman something about technology, which is almost impossible. And you taught Eisenberg how to spell runreg. Thane <laughs> <laughs> Thompson, thank you so much for being with us. Good luck. Are you, are you running or walking? You know, I can't. I'm the race director, so I'm not allowed to run, and, and that's a good thing. <laughs> so. Okay. We leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us today. Have a great time. Hope you raise a lot of money and awareness on Sunday for the Literacy Project. And good thank luck, you. Zane. Yeah, and thank you so much for doing that work. Great. Thank you for having us on there. Okay. We are now going to go to our regular segment with Salman Hamid, Salman Hamid's universe. Do we have some walk-up music for Salman?
Can we do that, Dan Torres? Hey, Mr. Spaceman, won't you please take me along? I won't do anything wrong. Hey, Mr. Spaceman, won't you please take me along for a ride? Professor Salman Hamid, Hampshire College. Professor Salman Hamid, an astronomer, thank you so much for being with us every month. I'm so appreciative of your time. And I'm so glad you're here because I saw this story in the newspaper yesterday, maybe the day before, has me extremely worried. There's this lovely planet. It was going around the sun. And the next thing they knew, the Santa was eaten by its sun. And I, uh, I'm sorry, Bill. I didn't hear you. Can I hear that again? Yeah, quite. <laughs> it, just, it just disappeared. I mean, it didn't disappear. The sun ate its planet. And like most things, Salman, this has me a little bit concerned, although later on in the article it said we probably, we, the Earth, earthlings, probably would not get to that point for some oh, billions of years. But still, you never can prepare too early. What happened and how much danger were we in? Thank you, uh, uh, Bill. Uh, <laughs> yeah, thank you a lot. <laughs> well, I mean, well, let's let, let, let. So this is called planetary engulfment. So I love the word, sort of like planetary engulfment, and uh, that is true. That our future is kind of like that. We still don't know. So this is what happened. Our sun, which is about five billion years old, it's in a relatively stable stage. And in a few billion years, it's going to expand a little. And the reason is because right down in the middle, uh, the, w w what produces energy right now, hydrogen is fusing into helium and that is what is producing the energy and keeping the sun stable. In a few billion years, it's going to run out of hydrogen in the core, uh, but you cannot fuse helium with the current temperature, core temperature. So it will need to shrink, the core will shrink until it gets to about 100 million degrees and then helium will start fusing into carbon. That's fine, that's not a big deal, okay. But here is what's gonna happen. Because the core is going to be producing more energy, the outer envelope of the sun is going to expand. And as it expands, it's going to be farther away from the core, the center, and so it's gonna cool a little. Astronomers call that stage a red giant. And that's what's going to happen to, this is a story of most stars. Stars like our sun are no exception to that. And when it expands, so far we know that it's going to engulf Mercury and Venus for sure. And probably Earth and Mars, we still don't know yet. But not to worry, we will be, and by we, I mean, not just me and you, but all life forms on Earth would have been obliterated long before because... Nothing to worry about, Bill. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we don't have to worry about the engulfment part because there won't be any life left on the planet. <laughs> Why? Well, because you, ha you have... Uh, the sun is going to get warmer and so it's going to evaporate the oceans and so on and so forth. I mean, right now, even with little changes in the sun, it can wreak havoc uh, with the climate on Earth. But in that particular case, you will have serious changes. So we know that this is what happens. And what's interesting about this particular story is that we have caught a star in the act of 
munching of a snack of eating of time. Now, and, and here's how I would describe it. We knew that planets have been eaten because astronomers have looked at some stars and their outer envelopes. And when they look at their composition, they can they sometimes find traces. Uh, I mean, you know, it's like CSI, some traces of an obliterated planet. So we knew that this must have happened. We also knew astronomers. Now we have over 5000 exoplanets. We have discovered many exoplanets and we know some of them orbit very close to their star. So we know that those stars, those planets would be absorbed by their their sun. But we had never seen an actual case. And in this particular case, astronomers, uh, they were looking for something else. But what they found was that a star, which is about uh, 12,000 light years from us. This is a star like our sun, but 10 billion years old. And they found that the star suddenly brightened up a little. Uh, and it's about 100 times brighter than it was for about a week. And when they looked at it a little bit more closely, uh, by closely, I, I, I don't mean going to close, but sort of like, you know, looked at their data and a little bit more. What they found was that there was a gas giant like Jupiter, perhaps a little bit bigger, and that it actually got swallowed up by the star. It went into its atmosphere, and that's what we saw. Which is amazing. And it leaves, well, it leads me to this question. If the stars are going to eat all the planets, and then the stars are going to disappear eventually because they burn themselves out. Guess. Does that mean that everything in the universe at some point disappears because the planets are eaten and the stars disappear and we're back to nothing? Bill, this, I think this is, this is a heavy morning, it seems like. You know? no. Well, you've got planets being eaten and stars disappearing. How can you not be upset? <laughs> There is nothing left, just darkness. Yes. No. Okay, so so no, stars uh, don't disappear. So what happens is, so this is the case for our, uh, so let, let me let me lighten it up a little. Let me go with the beauty part. Okay, well, hang on a sec, hang on a sec. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to hear about the beauty part, about what happens when our sun does or doesn't disappear. We'll see if Salman, Salman can keep this story straight for us right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Smith College's Graduate School for Social Work will abandon the term field, as in going into the field or field work, from its lexicon, following in the steps of other universities who have claimed the word has connotations to slavery that could be considered offensive. The school will now refer to the social work field as the social work profession. A field team will be called a practicum learning team, and a field instructor will be referred to as a clinical supervisor. Smith College spokesperson Carolyn McDaniel tells Mass Live, the policy shift regarding the word field was not a reaction to complaints, but a proactive decision to bring the language of their program more in line with their goals and intentions. Police are investigating after a fatal motor vehicle accident last night in Palmer. Officers responded to calls around 10.22 p.m. to a single car crash on Wilbraham Street, where they found the driver suffering life-threatening injuries. The driver was transported to Bay State Wing Hospital and pronounced dead. The identity of the driver has not been released. 
Congressman Jim McGovern will be in Northampton tomorrow marching in the Pride Parade. And I think it's important for us to show our support for the LGBTQ community because they are increasingly coming under attack by right-wing forces coming out of Washington, D.C. This year, the parade will start at Sheldon Field and end in downtown with the Pride Festival just outside the parking garage. Throughout the day, you can expect drag performances, bands, and over 60 vendors to fill the parking lot. The parade kicks off at 11 a.m. Partial sunshine today, still a chance of a scattered sprinkle or two, especially during the middle of the day, a high of 56 to 60. Clearing tonight, evening temperatures, upper 40s and low 50s, overnight lows of 36 to 42. Mostly sunny tomorrow, light breeze and a high of 68 to 72. Sun cloud mix and low 70s on Sunday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rechivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. La Reserva Federal reforzó su lucha contra la alta inflación el miércoles al elevar su tasa de interés clave en un cuarto de punto al nivel más alto en 16 años. Pero la Fed también señaló que ahora puede detener su racha de 10 aumentos de tasas que han hecho que los préstamos para consumidores y empresas sean cada vez más caros. En un comunicado posterior a su última reunión de política, la Fed eliminó una oración de su declaración anterior que decía que podrían ser necesarios algunos aumentos adicionales de tasas. Lo con un lenguaje que decía que ahora sopesará una variedad de factores para determinar la medida en la que podrían ser necesarios futuros aumentos. El presidente Jerome Powell dijo en una conferencia de prensa que la Fed aún tiene que decidir si suspenderá sus alzas de tasas, pero señaló que el cambio en el lenguaje de la declaración confirma al menos esa posibilidad. Los aumentos de tasas de la Fed desde marzo de 2022 han duplicado con creces las tasas hipotecarias, elevado los costos de los préstamos para automóviles, préstamos de tarjetas de crédito y préstamos comerciales y aumentado el riesgo de una recesión. El último movimiento de la Fed que elevó su tasa de referencia a aproximadamente el 5.1% podría aumentar aún más los costos de endeudamiento. En otras informaciones, Holyoke Community College celebró el miércoles una ceremonia de jubilación que sirvió de homenaje al legado y logros de la presidenta Cristina Royal, quien anunció que se retira al final de este año escolar. La celebración contó con la presencia de estudiantes, facultad, personal, exalumnos, oficiales de la institución educativa y oficiales electos, quienes elogiaron y reconocieron los múltiples logros de la doctora Cristina Royal como la cuarta presidenta de Holyoke Community College y la primera mujer birracional en presidir la institución. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. We continue our conversation with Hampshire College professor and astronomer Salman Hamid. During the break, we were talking about ZTFSLRM 2020. I mumbled that a little bit. That's the star that just ate the planet that Salman tells us we don't have to worry about. Our sun is not going to eat the Earth anytime soon. And besides which, there's a happy ending to all this. I'm all ears. Professor, teach us. Uh Okay, I, I said I, I, I said a, a little bit more hopeful uh, content. <laughs> uh, or, uh, not happy. Not say happy. <laughs> okay, so so here is the, the story, what's going to happen. Okay. So once you have, uh, our sun is going to get bigger, so it's in a few billion years, and it's going to engulf, it's going to eat up Mercury and Venus, maybe Earth and Mars as well. And 
this, so this is the stage called the red, uh, so a red uh, giant. And at that time, the outer planets, conditions around Jupiter and Saturn are actually going to get better. It's going to be in the habitable zone because there, right now it's too cold over there. So the moons of Jupiter and Saturn, which have liquid water may, under many of them, like Europa, for example, or Enceladus, or even Titan, Saturn's moon Titan, which has lakes of uh, ethane and methane and even of liquid water, I mean, of water, well, their conditions are going to be much better. So there is hope in that sense. The problem is that that stage is going to be much shorter, only a few tens of millions or hundreds of millions of years uh, before those the, the sun is going to shed off its outer envelope. And that stage, by the way, that's where I was getting at, that stage is going to be beautiful because what you'll be left with the core, which is very hot, which is the size of the earth. So you can think of the sun, uh, all of its mass, most of its mass shrunk into a very small area, which is the size of the earth, which astronomers call a white dwarf and it's very dense it's uh, the density of a, of an atom but initially for a little bit for hundreds of 100 million years or so you'll be surrounded by these gases that are the outer that today that make up the outer uh, envelope of the sun and they will be lit up by the heat of this core and this is what astronomers call a planetary nebula, even though it has nothing to do with planets. It's called a planetary nebula. And if you go and uh, look at images, sort of like, you know, on uh, Google, you just look for images of planetary nebula, Hubble Space Telescope, you are going to find some stunning images. So for a little while, it's going to be beautiful. And then those gases are going to dissipate and you'll be left with this central core, which astronomers call white dwarf, which is initially going to be very hot. And then it's just going to cool down, cool down, cool down, cool down forever. So it's not that nothing is going to be left. What you'll be left with a, a dying ember and it's going to just stay like that and it's going to keep on cooling down. And that's what it's going to be left with. And there are a lot of white dwarfs in the universe because stars like our sun, they end up and they leave you with this white dwarf. All righty. Wait a second, though. <laughs> Just wait a second. I know you describe it. It's a beautiful couple hundred million years, and uh, assuming that there is some being that can actually uh, visualize that or see that or somehow grasp what it, what it looks like. Uh, what I am still concerned about, Salman, is that the sun is going to become a tiny remnant of what it was. And it's not going to be a sun. It's just going to be this mass, right? It will have destroyed uh, life on Earth by expanding and making it Earth much, much hotter, if, assuming it doesn't eat the Earth. So the suns of, of the universe or the stars are going to destroy the planets or eat them. Um, the stars themselves shrink into almost nothing. It doesn't sound like... It, the universe becomes nothing, but if that's the process that's going to go on for over, to be sure, some billions and billions and billions of years, uh, in terms of the spectacular uh, universe that we see when we look up at the night sky or look through telescopes, um, is all that going to disappear eventually, at least for the most part, because the planets become eaten and the stars become tiny? 
So, so, so there are two answers to that. One is new stars also form, right? And, and new stars form from some of the material that gets ejected. So if you are talking about from a large scale perspective, so yes, this story is beautiful. The star also for a hundred million years, it looks spectacular, not to the planet, not to life forms that are in that system. It, it, they would look spectacular from far away, right? Just like we today see many planetary nebulae and we go like, ooh and ah. But remember when we are looking at it, you are seeing a star that has pretty much died and so on and so forth. And if there were planets around it, well, there is no life form today. So that is true. But you have a larger question that what happens on hundreds of billions of year time frame, or even more than that, that eventually you are going to be left with a universe made up of these dead stars. That is absolutely true eventually because you are going to recycle material, but not all of it because some of that material gets locked into these cores, the dead stars, right? So a lot of our stars, most stars in the universe are stars like our sun or smaller. They're going to leave a white dwarf. So there'll be a lot of white dwarfs, stars that are bigger. They are going to become neutron stars and stars that are even bigger. They're going to become black holes. So these are all types of dead stars and rest of it would be gases that cannot turn into stars because they are too diffuse. So eventually your hunch about the darkness is correct because eventually you're going to be left with a universe which, which includes basically dead galaxies containing these dead stars, white dwarfs, neutron stars, black holes, and gases that don't turn into any stars. What so, you're, yeah, what you're describing that, for us is the limitations of universal recycling. That's what we got here, right? That, that, that is correct. It's not 100% recycling, and, and who knows what's going to happen to plastic. So maybe I should say there's some plastic <laughs> left over, too. <laughs> yes. I feel so much better now. So you mean it doesn't matter? I shouldn't rush and buy parcels of land on Jupiter and Saturn because eventually it's not going to matter. Well, that is true. I mean, I mean, look, I mean, we are great and we, I mean, humans and by great, I mean, are deluding ourselves in terms <laughs> of our self-importance. <laughs> what I mean is, I mean, you know, we are talking about scales even uh, for our own sun when we are talking about its red giant phase. We are talking about a few billion years from now. Humans live hundred years like you know and uh so it's really it, it really doesn't matter in that context and if you talk about the universal scale so even our galaxy doesn't matter because eventually yeah you will be in hundreds of billions of years or probably trillions of years that's what you're going to left because our universe is accelerating so it will keep on expanding forever and that's what you are going to be left with but and here is the hopeful part but isn't it really cool that we can figure this out? Isn't yeah. it really cool that we can create, we can actually understand our dark, hopeless future? I think that's really hopeful. <laughs> okay, so in, in the minute or so that we have less, Salman Hamid, professor and astronomer, is this observation of ZTFSL, ZTFSLRM 2020, is this a big scientific advance? Or is just this is a phenomenon that we knew occurred, and we just had the amazing opportunity, or scientists, astronomers had the amazing opportunity to see it. 
well, for astronomers who did that discovery, it's an amazing discovery. But in general, no, this is this is important because we knew that star that planets get eaten by stars, and we knew that there are planets that are very close to their stars. So we know we knew that this happens. This is the first time we have seen in action this happen. So in some sense, the way they describe it, like you know, that this is a missing link. This is an actual. Uh, it's like we knew that planets existed. I mean, we knew that our sun would not be the only star with planets up until 1990s. But until then, we had not discovered planets around other stars. But then we started discovering planets around other stars, and that was a big deal. In the same way, we know that planets, that stars eat planets, but we had never seen one happening at a time. And in this particular case, astronomers caught it red-handed it's like the csi <laughs> case it's like they found it and for 10 days it brightened up and then they actually did others so so this is a case where the star has no alibi yeah it's in, a case i remember from science class this is when an hypothesis becomes a fact that's right yes on that positive note we'll leave it Professor and astronomer Salman Hamid, this has been Salman Hamid's Universe. Thank you so much for being with us. I just love this segment. It's so much fun to talk to you. It's darkness, Bill. Yeah, he brings darkness, <laughs> but but it's really fun darkness. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, Salman. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Local farms are welcoming spring to the co-op. Asparagus popping up and ready to eat in bunches. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats and sausage, everything to kick off grilling season. In the co-op cheese department, welcome the maple season with maple-washed Willoughby, a delicious local cheese washed with Vermont maple liqueur. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. 20 years ago, we envisioned creating a brighter future for people and planet. Now, PV Squared celebrates a big milestone, two decades of designing, building, and maintaining quality solar projects for homes and businesses in our community. PV Squared is a worker-owned co-op. When you partner with us, you get a team dedicated to the success of your project, from your first meeting to servicing your system down the road. Build SolarWrite and do business better. It's the co-op difference. Learn more at pvsquared.coop. What's new at the Waitley Inn? Everything. The Waitley Inn has undergone a stunning transformation with a fresh new look inside and a beautiful wraparound porch with great views and expanded parking area. The only thing that hasn't changed is the menu, offering classic New England fare the Waitley Inn has become famous for. The Waitley Inn is open Wednesday through Saturday starting at 4 p.m. and Sunday from 1 to 7. Pickup is also available with easy online ordering. Visit WaitleyInn.com. Eat greatly at the Waitley. Looking for a fun and competitive day out with friends or the office team? The Junior Achievement Annual Golf Tournament is on Friday, June 9th at Crump and Fox in Bernardston. The day will include many contests, giveaways, food, and more. Junior Achievement of Western Massachusetts helps prepare young people for real-world career and financial success through in-school and after-school programs focused on financial literacy, career exploration, and entrepreneurship. To register, visit jawm.org.
Welcome to Artbeat with Donabel Cassis, our usual Friday segment, which we love so very much. Donabel has with her and us today a very special guest. The pleasure of the introduction is yours, Donabel. Thank you, Bill. Good morning. Next week on May 11th, we're excited to announce that the Arts Lawn will be back in the area in Amherst at the University Museum of Contemporary Art and we will return with our usual excellent roster of artists from the area. And here joining us today is Lisa Thompson, who was an original or is an original founding member of the Arts Lawn Steering Committee. She joins us today. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you. Nice to be here. Now, Lisa, we've, you know, I keep saying we because we are both on the Art Salon Committee, but I'm going to interview you as the member of the Art Salon. Um, tell us a little bit about the history, if anyone listening is new to what the Art Salon is. So the Art Salon began actually at UMass um, in, the, um, in the Chancellor's house. Um, the Chancellor's wife, uh, Sabina Haloub, um, decided to create these salons where artists would come and present in this um, particular format that um, was origin originated in Japan and it's called the Chak Chak. It's a short presentation of um, artists presenting a visual slide presentation um, within about six to eight minutes. Um, so it's fast it moving. really fast. <laughs> it's like fast speed moving. dating for artists, fast. right? So, <laughs> Those salons um, happened at, at the chancellor's house for a number of years, and then um, the chancellor and his wife you know, left UMass, and so there was a group of us um, who decided we needed to carry this project forward, and our idea was that we would move around the, um, the region and, um, and present, you know, create salons in different venues around the region um, and highlight artists from different communities. I mean, that's such an amazing service. Bill, you have a pondering question. I, I do. Uh, at the risk of asking something really basic, what do you mean by a salon? Well, because I was looking at up, I was looking at up on Google while you're talking, and I now know what a saloon is. But I'm telling about a salon. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know the exact definition, but the salon style is is a is a way in which people come together and they and there's a presentation or there's a. Um, uh, performance or there's a talk um, and these were, um, you know, as I said, these were based on something that was originated in Japan the, and, and um, a way in which people could, in a very short format, learn about um, artists' work. Mm -hmm. And typically, if you think about salon style ways of displaying, it's a grouping of art. And so we are, the art salon is essentially bringing in a group of artists to have a discourse about their practice and um, about their thinking and their, their ways of being in the community, the arts community. Now, Lisa, there's an outstanding lineup of artists. Please tell us who will be presenting at UMass on May 11th. 
Well, we have a great, a great lineup of artists. Um, AJ Rombach is, um, is an artist, curator, and educator based in uh, Massachusetts. A AJ received his MFA from Boston University and has been um, a founding member of an artist-run space in Philadelphia called Fjord. Um, AJ has curated many shows, including one at APE last year. So we're nice. very excited to have AJ um, be part of the art salon. Um, Jeff Casper is an artist, writer, and educator. Um, he focuses on techniques of design and contemplative practices and community engagement to create public art, publications, workshops, and participatory learning projects. Um, he is a, an assistant professor right now at the University of Massachusetts at, um, at Amherst. Um, so we're very excited to be able to um, see some of the work of Jeff. Um, yeah, now I know, Lisa, we try to get artists from the area we're presenting at, and we're also trying to get artists from outside the area to have them be introduced to the community. So it's nice to have Jeff, and I know the next artist you're probably going to speak about is also from Amherst. Right, and Jeff also has done a lot of work in New York. So hmm. um, he moves back and forth and has done a number of public art projects in New York. So we'll I'm sure get to see, I'm sure we'll get to see some of that. Um, uh, our next artist is Nima Nikala, is a multidisciplinary, multidisciplinary artist. He's a native of, uh, to Iran. He received his MFA at UMass and is now directing the Herder Gallery at UMass. He is, his work is performance-based um, and has, um, and perceives it as a, not only a form of visual art, but a, a socio, so, social political art form. So, so can I interrupt for a minute? Help. We just have about three or four minutes left. What do we get to see? Um, you're going to see examples of each artist's work. And then mm -hmm. our final presenter is Sarah Smith, who's a transdisciplinary a choreographer and librarian who works at, um, at um, Amherst College. She's done a number of documentary performances, and I have no idea what she's going to show, but it, I know that it's going to be interesting. It's all going to be interesting. <laughs> well, Bill, good question. What are they going to see? So when we mentioned the, uh, the platform as using the Pichapcha um, format, it is a, a way of using slides or now, you know, visual images. Now slides is very analog. Uh, so there's a, there's a, almost a presentation, a visual presentation of each artist's work in which they are able to speak about their process and such um, for about six and a half minutes each. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a very quick way of getting a preview of their work, but um, also an, a way for, for the art salon to present more than one artist. Uh, typically, there are about four to five artists at each art salon, um, which makes it a really engaging evening. And afterwards, there's a Q&A where people can ask the artist questions and um, also, you know, a way for the artist to mingle with the audience members and speak to them afterwards. Yeah, I was going to add that the Q&A is a very important component of the Art Salon because it really invites the audience to engage with the artists. And sometimes those conversations are really interesting. So let us know, Lisa, the details. How do we get to the Art Salon? So it's at the University Museum of Contemporary Art at UMass. Um, the doors open at 6 p.m. Um, the presentations will begin at 6.30. Um, there's a suggested donation of 5 to $10. Um, and that's 
that's it. <laughs> and I, I, I want to make sure too that those donations are critical because this the art salon is a volunteer run organization and that money goes towards providing stipends for each of the artists to present because we believe that artists should be paid to do this. And when is this please? Thursday, May 11th. Thursday, May 11th, University Museum of Contemporary Art. Uh, the Art Salon will be there. Lisa Thompson, thank you so much for joining us today. It will be a great event. I can't wait to see you there and see the artists. You're welcome. Thank and, you for having me. And Lisa and Donabelle, before we run, is this one night only? Yes, it's one night only. We do four of them per year. So we'll have two in the fall. Um, this will be our final one before the summer. And we'll look forward to doing one in East, uh, in East Hampton and also in Turner's Falls um, in the fall. And this is this coming Thursday, May 11th, is that right? Yes. Six o'clock at the University Museum of Contemporary Art? Yes. In Amherst. Sounds in Amherst. fabulous. Lisa Thompson, Donna Bell, Cassis, thank you both so very much. Thanks for this fabulous introduction. Can't wait to see it. Thank you so very, very, very much. Thanks. The beat goes on. Beat goes on. Drums keep pounding a rhythm to the brain. Imagine working hard for so many years and reaching your retirement only to find out there's an issue with your pension or 401k. Unfortunately, it's a problem too many Americans face. The New England Pension Assistance Project can help you get the benefits you've earned by providing free legal help. Contact the New England Pension Assistance Project at 888 888- 425-6067 or visit them online at pensionhelp.org slash New England. A public service from the U.S. Administration on Aging's Pension Counseling and Information Program. Want to know more about local history, literature, and education? Hilltown Families bi-monthly Learning Ahead Cultural Itineraries offer an easy way to delve into Western Mass culture and traditions. These new seasonal itineraries are produced in collaboration with a humanities scholar and community education expert, offering ways for self-directed teens and lifelong learners to engage in learning that helps shape a sense of place. Funded by a year-long grant from Mass Humanities, you can download guides anytime, free of charge, at Hilltown Families. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. W. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to our show. I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. Uh, Bill, I am really excited about what is uh, about our guests that we have in studio today and the remarkable piece of. investigative reporting that uh, he has produced. Uh, the title of his piece is Exploitation, Abuse, and Death, The Dark Side of Working in the Weed Industry. It is really eye-opening. You know, we make all these jokes about now cannabis is lawfully used, and and uh, we uh, talk about munchies and the like. Well, there's nothing funny about this article, which is reported in The Nation and Western Mass's uh, independent uh, news outlet, The Shoestring. It is by Dusty Christensen. Hello, Dusty. Hi, thanks for having me, all. Uh, this is a remarkable piece. It's so well-researched and uh, chilling, I think. Could you sort of summarize it for our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, it was a little more than a year ago uh, that uh, Lorna McMurray, a uh, West Springfield uh, woman, uh, walked into the cannabis uh, growing facility where she worked in East Hampton and uh, 
was carried out on a stretcher. She was 27 years old. She worked at the True Leaf Grow Operation in Holyoke. Uh, that's one of the big grow operations in that city, which has really gone all in on the cannabis industry. Let bringing me just say in, it again. True Leaf, T-R-U-L-I-E-V-E. That's right. That, that's right. They operate in the former Conklin Furniture uh, Mill Building, uh, a, a massive grow operation. And... Um, uh, this this woman, uh, Lorna, uh, was brain dead by the time she got to the hospital that day uh, back in January of, of last year. Uh, she died three days later of cardiac arrest due to an apparent asthma attack. Uh, that's a condition that her mother said she didn't have until she started working at that large-scale grow facility. And sure enough, six months later, uh, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA, fined TrueLeave, at the time, uh, $35,000 for safety violations related to Lorna's death. At that time, they said it was due to inhalation of ground cannabis dust. $35,000. How much does TrueLeave bring in in its gross revenue? <laughs> they bring in quite a bit. They uh, they posted revenues uh, in 2022 of $1.24 billion, gross profits of more than $680 million. And I should say OSHA reduced that fine to $14,000, which I'm sure TrueLeave had no problem paying. Um, they said uh, ultimately that, uh, that uh, Lorna's death um, – was related to a likely uh, asthma attack or, or, or you know, an, an allergic attack. And uh, the company has now agreed in exchange for the reduction of those fines to study whether ground cannabis dust should be classified as a hazardous chemical in occupational settings. Um, but we saw this as an opportunity to look at this issue in a much broader way, looking at other grow facilities across our region, across the country, talking to workers and activists and uh and people in the know, uh, occupational safety experts, uh, about this bigger issue of danger for those growing the cannabis that everyone uses. I, there's so much that we have to talk about in this regard, but what is cannabis dust? Yeah, so, you know, uh, it, folks may uh, uh, consume their cannabis in any number of ways, whether you buy a pre-rolled joint at a uh, cannabis facility. I think that's probably a very common way that people buy and use cannabis. And obviously, in order to roll those joints, uh, the cannabis needs to be ground up. I think people who are familiar with the process at home usually put it in their own little grinder and, and you know, twist the thing and voila, out pops, uh, you know, fine cannabis. But obviously when you're doing that on an industrial scale, uh, when you're doing that on such a large scale like these facilities are, you're putting in these massive machines that grind it all down and out pops fine particulate matter, which as we know from many other industrial workplaces is not good for lung health in any way. Why is cannabis different from all other manufacturing in, with regard to dust. People wear protective equipment and masks and all that sort of thing. Isn't cannabis part of that kind of basic safety? Uh, basic isn't, isn't that part of it? I, I think uh, I think yes and no is is the answer. Yes, in the sense that you know people have known for a long time that, uh, as I just mentioned, particulate matter is not good for lung health. Is not something to be inhaling. You know, we spoke with one worker who likened his experience working in a cannabis grow facility to his time uh, working in construction and getting uh, sawdust in his lungs. So, in that sense, it is uh, it is not a new industrial hazard. However, we have also talked to in this piece an ex. Expert, uh, one of the nation's foremost experts on uh, on respiratory health and and workplace um, safety, 
uh, a researcher by the name of Coralyn Sack, who is an assistant professor at the University of Washington's Department of Environmental and Occupational Health Sciences. That's quite a mouthful. Um, And she and her colleagues have done a number of studies with federal funding to study workplace exposures and health symptoms related to indoor grow facilities. And what they found is not only this particulate matter issue, there's also mold to be considered, uh, but they've also found a high prevalence of work-related allergic and particularly respiratory symptoms among facility employees. We'll remember that Lorna McMurray died from from what uh, was uh, said to be an asthma attack. So um, uh, this is an, a bigger issue that perhaps is not present in other similar conditions. And I, and I want to go back to Bill's question about why is this different than other similar workplace situations. And you point out in your article that the Cannabis Control Commission does not allow any odor to leave the building. And therefore, exhaust fans and HVAC that might work in other industries, you can't put the stuff, you can't transfer it from inside your factory to the air, the ambient air outside. And, and folks who follow local politics or my reporting when I was at the Daily Hampshire Gazette uh, may remember that this was actually a, a, a big issue in Holyoke. There was a whole debacle in the city council uh, over the issue of odor emerging from True Leaf's facility in particular, as well as some others, uh, GTI, Green Thumbs Industries, also operates uh, down in the flats there in Holyoke. And uh, it became such a fiasco in the Holyoke City Council. Uh, some some mill building owners who did not have cannabis in their facilities came in, complained about the odor emanating from the ones that, that do. And uh, a group of counselors got together and decided not to... It was, it was a lengthy thing, but there was a there was a grammatical error that essentially banned new cannabis facilities from coming into the city. Uh, city a lot of city officials recognized, like, whoops, we just did this by making a grammatical issue, a Scrivener's error, as it's, as it's known, in an ordinance. Well, a group of city councilors banded together and just said, we don't want to fix the grammatical issue and essentially uh, banned cannabis facilities from coming in for a number of months until that issue was sorted out, but over this issue of odor. So you're right that it, that it is a tricky thing for these companies to ventilate out some of this stuff from their facilities. Why is odor such a big deal? I, I don't I don't know why. I think people find the odor of cannabis maybe to be uh, you know unpleasant or uh, quite strong. You know, I have to say, if you go down near some of these facilities, it does stink quite a bit down there, whether it's um, True Leave in, in Holyoke or in San East Hampton or really any of them. Uh, you can smell it. And some people find that to be a pleasant smell. Some people don't. Um, but obviously, I think the bigger issue being that, you know, that odor coming out presumably is a degree of, of exhaust coming out of the building, um, which would be important if we're talking about the ventilation of just a particulate matter. You know, in my capacity as an attorney, I got, I got a call from someone who lives not too far. Actually, it's an eighth of a mile from uh, a growing facility. And he said he always loved the smell. But when it's with you 24-7, yeah. it's just too much. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, obviously, this is a problem as well with other uh, industries. I grew up in a uh, for part of my childhood in a meat packing plant town in in uh, rural Nebraska, and you know, this thing from that place carried across the whole town. So, uh, so Dusty Christensen, I was I was speaking of Holyoke. I didn't know that Holyoke housed so much of the cannabis industry, the the factories here in Massachusetts. It's a huge percentage, right? It is. They the uh, the uh, economic planning director there, Aaron Vega, who folks may remember was a, a state legislator legislator before. Um, 
uh, he used the word, you know, a mecca for for cannabis businesses uh, or, you know, cannabis cluster has been another one that people have used. I know that the former mayor, Alex Morse, joked about uh, making the paper city into the rolling paper city. Uh, they had a really open process and and uh, really uh, did a lot to attract particularly these uh, these manufacturers and growers into these old mill buildings, which is great. I mean, these buildings are sitting unused. A lot of uh, current industrial uh, businesses, as I understand, can't use those buildings for the way they're set up. So they're able to come in and rehab these old buildings. Uh, Holyoke has more licenses approved by the Cannabis Control Commission than any other city in the state, uh, Boston included, Worcester included, um, for these kinds of, of businesses. They can provide cheaper electricity and are on two major interstates. Yeah, we'll talk about that, Dusty Christensen. Electricity is cheaper in Holyoke. Why is that? They've got the municipal dam, uh, the municipal ca- canal system. They were one of the first planned industrial cities uh, in the country. Uh, Obviously, back in the day, that was uh, largely used for making paper. But uh, obviously, those cheap electric rates that Holyoke Gas and Electric can provide uh, are a real boon to growers who grow indoors and rely on uh, lights that use lots of electricity to do that. Your story is about the safety hazards of the cannabis industry, and I do want us to return to that. I would like to know, since this topic has just arisen in the course of this conversation, which is the difference, if any, in terms of the quality of the cannabis and or the relative advantages to growing indoors as opposed to outside? You know, it's a good question. Um, I, I suppose, you know, taking a step outside the journalist role, I can answer a little bit as somebody who has also grown myself, which is legal in our state now. Um, you know, obviously growing indoors allows you to control conditions in a way that's not possible outdoors, uh, you know, moisture and and everything like that, um, and the amount of light that you're getting. And so I think from a commercial standpoint, it makes a lot of sense for these companies to grow indoors because they can have a greater degree of control over the plants that they're growing. Um, of course, there's tons of benefits to growing outdoors as well uh, in the in the open air and, and under, you know, natural sunlight. Uh, and some people would suggest that that is the more quality product that's grown outdoors. But um, I'm not uh, as much of an expert on that to get into that. Uh, that's just how I understand the benefits of growing indoors versus outdoors. Well, your piece here, and I just want to read the subtitle here, the uh, the subheading here. The, uh, the cannabis industry is booming, but workers say they face low wages, rapacious bosses, and life-threatening conditions. Can you talk a little bit about the... Uh, low wages part of your story. Yeah, it really sounds like this is this is not your father's marijuana. <laughs> it's not. You know, uh, I think that uh, it's important in any industry to focus on you know the conditions of the workers who are actually making the profits for those businesses. And um, you know, I'm somebody who, in my time at the Gazette and just living in Western Mass, have. Have, I've spoken with many uh, workers in the cannabis industry, most of whom are afraid to come on the record because they don't have a union. They don't want to speak out against these big companies that they work for. Um, but the story was uh, pretty universal from what I was hearing from folks who worked as trimmers, for example, uh, post-harvesters, packagers, that kind of thing, um, that the work was physically grueling, the wages were low, and that they felt like uh, out-of-town uh, rich folks were, were benefiting at the expense of you know their bodies and their paycheck. And so, um, you know, we dug into this. There's a new report from the hiring platform for the cannabis industry, Vangst, uh, that found in 2022 trimmers, post harvesters, packers.
packagers made between 16 and 20 an hour nationwide for that physically demanding work. Um, that is not a living wage in Massachusetts. Um, and so, you know, at least speaking about wages, uh, this is these are jobs that um, that some folks are taking the step of unionizing in order to, to make more money on the job. With regard to the safety, Dusty, what I'd like to know is whether the illegality of marijuana federally prevents OSHA from being involved in this and or whether the state is otherwise capable of monitoring, monitoring these potentially very dangerous working work sites. Uh, it's a good question. Uh, as as uh, we as I noted at the top of the the segment, uh, you know, OSHA did fine truly for the death of of Lorna McMurray, and so OSHA is involved in overseeing uh, workplace safety at these facilities in a way that's similar to to other industrial spaces. But you are correct that the federal prohibition on cannabis does impact a whole number of of steps that uh, that experts could be taking to better improve safety conditions in these workplaces. Uh, the the researcher I mentioned earlier, earlier Coralyn Sack, uh, noted that because of federal prohibition, it's really hard to get money for particular kinds of studies uh, in order to understand what we're dealing with in the first place. And so uh, that has really put a sort of a kink in the hose in terms of dollars going to research that could work to provide safer conditions for laborers in this industry. So is the state on top of this or not? Uh, I think it depends on who you ask. The Cannabis Control Commission um, has caught some flack for, um, for example, there was a large mold outbreak at a grow facility uh, in the uh, town of Munson. Uh, the 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 large company Holistic Industries owns that grow operation. And uh, as I got into in the piece and reported for the Gazette at the time, um, the Cannabis Control Commission uh, conducted only a virtual visit of the building at the time. Uh, obviously, uh, some people, including the the Board of Health in the town of Munson, uh, sort of uh, had to do a double take on that. Uh, you know, it's a it's an issue where mold is growing throughout the building, supposedly. And so, uh, hi, we're going to inspect the mold by looking at it through a camera, <laughs> through a computer. I don't even know how you do that. I yeah. don't know how you do that. <laughs> so, uh, I think what you do is you say, do you have mold? Yeah, yeah. You know, I think uh, I, there have been plenty of people who have suggested that the Cannabis Control Commission's um, inspections process needs to be more professionalized. I know that there was a... Um, that there was a Boston Globe editorial uh, to that very point, uh, maybe a month or so ago. Um, so it is the Cannabis Control Commission's job to also be inspecting these kinds of things and to be making sure that not only the cannabis that is being consumed by people in the state of Massachusetts is free of pesticides, mold, that kind of thing, uh, and and that that process to ensure that is, is working smoothly, but also to ensure that these companies are setting up workplaces that are safe for the people working there. We are speaking with Dusty Christensen, and after the break, we've got more to talk about. His article is Exploitation, Abuse, and Death, The Dark Side of Working in the Weed Industry. You can find it in The Nation. You can find it in Western Mass's important independent news outlet, The Shoestring. We'll be back with Dusty Christensen talking about, well, dust right after this. Did I tell you I need you every single day of my life? You didn't run, you didn't lie, you knew I wanted just to hold you. 
Had you gone, you knew in time we'd meet again for I adore you. Listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Tag your it. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Tom Hartman program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation, and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to three, right here on WHMP. 1015-1400-1240 WHMP. The last place any of us wants to end up is the auto body shop. But if you ever do, the people to turn to are the experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. At Fort Hill, you can leave your concerns at the door. They'll work with your insurance company and return your vehicle back to you in perfect condition. Guaranteed. Look, you love your car. Fort Hill Collision Services will love it too. So for the European touch for your foreign or domestic vehicle, trust the experts at Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9 in Amherst. At Mountain View Farm in East Hampton, we have been growing beautiful, certified organic produce exclusively for our farm share members since we started. And we have been voted best local CSA in the Valley for the last 15 years running. Included in your weekly pickup, you can also enjoy our field of you-pick flowers and herbs all season long. And you can shop in our farm store, which features many wonderful local products. We offer shares for all size households. Sign up at mountainviewfarmcsa.com. The months following a child's birth can be of the most trying times of a woman's life. With the round-the-clock demands of a newborn, who is the time or energy for housework? Hi, I'm Amy Love from Green Love Eco Cleaning, and I'd love to put my team of eco-friendly cleaners to work for you. With our Green Care Postpartum Support Program, we offer discounted green cleaning services on a sliding scale to postpartum families for the duration of the fourth trimester, or the first three months after your baby is born. To find out more about the services we provide, check us out online at greenloveclean.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are continuing our conversation, a very important conversation with Dusty Christensen, the investigative uh, reporter, freelance reporter now, and his piece about the dark side of working in the weed industry that appears in the current issue of The Nation and The Shoestring. Um, Dusty, you, um, among the many things that you talk about in this uh, congratulations, really well-researched, really well-articulated uh, story about the underside of the, the cannabis industry. You, you talk about this anti-union effort on the part of at least holistic um, uh, on these growers and manufacturers of cannabis products. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. So uh, I think a little context for people like anybody in the private sector uh, here in the United States and, you know, the public sector to a lesser extent, but also true. Uh, people don't have unions in the United States uh, at the same uh, density that they do in, in, in other countries uh, that are similarly positioned. Um, we, just, uh, we just had an author on it wrote about unions yesterday uh, who, I didn't realize this, says that 6% yes. of the workforce in, the pri in private industry is unionized. That, Only 6 
back when I was growing up was a third. Yep, yep, exactly. The you know that decline has been going on for decades and decades, and so it's no shock that most workers in the cannabis industry also have no union, which means no workplace democracy, no voice in in decisions that are made, and no recourse when when things are going wrong in the workplace. And um, so naturally, there have and been, by the way, no viable middle class. Right, right, exactly. I think you know a lot of people get into this industry because they're passionate about cannabis. Maybe they're medical marijuana users, or maybe they've grown previously and and are excited to get into this now legal business and uh, quickly realize that uh, to do so means to to make low wages and, as you say, not really have much of a career path forward uh, doing that work that they love doing. So uh, it's unsurprising then that there have been a number of efforts across the country uh, and here locally to unionize cannabis facilities um, uh, you know, there are some that have unionized with either UFCW. Um, there's the grow facility down in, in Holyoke, Green Thumb Industries. Um, uh, there's Berkshire Roots uh, out, uh, you know, in Berkshire County, uh, to name just a few. Um, and just like uh, bosses in other uh, parts of the private sector, including the Daily Hampshire Gazette, when I was there, um, these companies are hiring uh, anti-union could you, consultants. Could you do that inflection again? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, they're hiring these, uh, these uh, high-paid uh, lawyers whose entire job is to uh, fight a union from, uh, from forming in the workplace and to convince workers to uh, – to uh, not unionize. And so, you know, uh, sometimes there's a lot of loopholes to this law, unfortunately, but often uh, these companies, when they hire anti-union consultants, uh, union-busting consultants, they have to report it to the federal government. And so there are some companies locally who have reported hiring those folks. Uh, INSA in East Hampton, which is one of, if not the most uh, um, popular uh, retail cannabis stores in the entire state, uh, has hired uh, the union-busting consultant Katie Lev. Uh, to uh, to dissuade workers from organizing, according to federal filings, uh, that is, by the way, uh, the same uh, consulting firm that the National Labor Relations Board issued a decision against in January, finding that uh, that firm, Lev Labor, broke the law during its union busting work for Amazon at two of its warehouses on Staten Island. So, um, you know, this stuff is happening locally as well as you know on a broader scale across the country. Um, and just like uh, lots of other employers, uh, uh, you know, INSA, Holistic Industries is another we mentioned, uh, are, uh, are fighting their workers' desires to form a union. And you, you, you quote um, one, I guess, CEO of one of these uh, companies, I don't remember which one, but she's making $8 million a year, and the workers are making 16 to $20 a year for exposing themselves to potentially fatal conditions in the workplace. 16 to 20 an hour? Yes. What did I say? Yes, an hour. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 low pay, and and you're right. Uh, the executives of these companies are pulling in really, really big money. Um, you know, I I, I uh, you're speaking about Kim Rivers, who is the CEO of TrueLeave. Uh, they're based in Florida, but they have operations across uh, Massachusetts and a number of other states. And uh, yeah, she made uh, over eight million in compensation in 2021. That was the last. Uh, public filing with the Securities and Exchange Commission that that company had made. And that's pretty normal for these giant uh, cannabis companies that we're talking about. A lot of people making a lot of money, or a few people making a lot of money, and a lot of people just scraping by. I've never heard that story before, Bill. I haven't either. I would <laughs> l love to ask you this question based on what you just said, Dusty. The cannabis industry took off upon legalization, not surprisingly. There is a 
big question about whether the industry and whether various locations are saturated now. The recipe for low wages and uh, skimping on safety uh, in order to save costs uh, is an industry or business that's in trouble. Is that going to play out here? You know, it's a good question. I mean, we're certainly seeing this play out with retailers here in the uh, in the region. I know we've had uh, at least one, if not more, close in uh, in Northampton and East Hampton um, as these retailers sort of uh, struggle to find their own place within the local mar- market, their own niche. You know, as for the growers, it's a good question. I'm I'm sure that at some point they may also feel those pressures, and I am. Uh, even more sure that they are really hoping for the federal legalization of cannabis, which would allow for interstate commerce and for you to sell (laughs) your product outside of state lines, which at the moment is not legal. So, you know, these companies, for example, that are working in Holyoke, I'm sure have considered the possibility that if cannabis is to be made legal on the on the federal level, they'll be able to ship it east and west on the on the pike and and north and south on ninety one to um, to communities you know all across this area, which obviously would be a huge boon for them. So um, you know this is an industry that you're right is growing. That states are continuing to legalize. I think Minnesota is soon to be the next one. Florida looks like it might be making some moves that way, which is a big deal. Um, and once it becomes legal federally, some financial analysts that we quoted in the piece are predicting it's going to turn into a hundred billion dollar uh, industry. Dusty Christensen, we are so lucky to have your voice on our program from time to time. You you do such important work. This is important. So many people, whether it's for recreational purposes or the gummies to sleep better or uh, other medicinal uses, we uh, we see cannabis uh, in the lives of so many, and it's becoming. Uh, clear to me that there's a lot more when you peel away the curtains to see. Before we go, I'd like to ask you the buzz question. Is there anything that we as potential consumers or consumers of cannabis might do to try to improve the lives of persons who are working to produce this product? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, You know, I think it's a tricky question because ultimately the changes that need to happen are bigger structural ones, right? It's it's workers coming together themselves and unionizing to demand better conditions. Um, you know, uh, I'm sure that there are uh, there are large scale you know uh, tactics that could be used to to name and shame and 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 steer away from businesses that aren't treating their workers right versus uh, you know supporting those ones that are locally. Um, you know, obviously, I'll leave that to the folks in the cannabis industry. Uh, you know, to to call for. Uh, you know, uh, rather than me as the reporter, but. Um I think it's important to just pay attention where this stuff is coming from. The one big criticism, and I wouldn't even consider it one uh, uh, to take super seriously, that I got from people online after this was published was saying, "Oh, you're just you're just demonizing cannabis. This is reefer madness 2.0." And and you know, I think it could be nothing could be farther from the truth. I think it's just important that if you ca- if you do enjoy consuming cannabis and you do care about it, that you don't turn uh, away from some of the business practices that are bringing that uh, to your uh, table and to the joint you're putting to your lips. And I, I just wanted to point out, apropos to what Bill was asking about, there, in fact, one of the companies that you wrote about, I believe it's Green Thumb, in Toledo, Ohio, wasn't there an explosion at one of their factories? That- yeah, we get, we went into a whole bunch of uh, findings that OSHA uh, had has published uh, related to workplace safety issues. Everything from an ethanol explosion hospitalizing a worker to uh, exposed electrical wires in, a, in another grow facility. Um, 
there's quite a few of them across the country. I guess the best thing we can do uh, with respect to what Bill was suggesting is first educate ourselves. The article is Exploitation, Abuse, and Death, The Dark Side of Working in the Weed Industry. It's in this month's The Nation and on Western Mass Independent News Outlet, The Shoestring. Dusty Christensen, it's always edifying, uh, and I'm always impressed at the extent of your investigative work. Thanks for having me. Thanks for doing the show. Thank you. Thank you a lot. We're going to be back with Michael Budnick (laughs) and others on the East Hampton Theater Company's production of God of Carnage and Hampshire Prides. March tomorrow, Drew Pearson will be back right after this. Now, wait a minute. You know my baby. She won't let me in. I've got a few pennies. I'm going to buy myself a bottle of gin. Then I'm gonna call my buddy on the telephone and say This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Smith College's Graduate School for Social Work will abandon the term field, as in going into the field or field work, from its lexicon, following in the steps of other universities who have claimed the word has connotations to slavery that could be considered offensive. The school will now refer to the social work field as the social work profession. A field team will be called a practicum learning team, and a field instructor will be referred to as a clinical supervisor. Smith College spokesperson Carolyn McDaniel tells Mass Live, the policy shift regarding the word field was not a reaction to complaints, but a proactive decision to bring the language of their program more in line with their goals and intentions. Police are investigating after a fatal motor vehicle accident last night in Palmer. Officers responded to calls around 10.22 p.m. to a single car crash on Wilbraham Street, where they found the driver suffering life-threatening injuries. The driver was transported to Bay State Wing Hospital and pronounced dead. The identity of the driver has not been released. Congressman Jim McGovern will be in Northampton tomorrow marching in the Pride Parade. And I think it's important for us to show our support for the LGBTQ community because they are increasingly coming under attack by right-wing forces coming out of Washington, D.C. This year, the parade will start at Sheldon Field and end in downtown, with the Pride Festival just outside the parking garage. Throughout the day, you can expect drag performances, bands, and over 60 vendors to fill the parking lot. The parade kicks off at 11 a.m. Partial sunshine today, still a chance of a scattered sprinkle or two, especially during the middle of the day, a high of 56 to 60. Clearing tonight, evening temperatures, upper 40s and low 50s, overnight lows of 36 to 42. Mostly sunny tomorrow, light breeze and a high of 68 to 72. Sun cloud mix and low 70s on Sunday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to WHMP.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. Someone drops a cell phone down a grate. You've got string, paper clips, tape, and a magnet. Will you be able to retrieve the phone? You're at summer camp at the Bement School in Deerfield. 
There are theme weeks like Broadway, flag football, studio arts, STEM challenges, and science exploration. There's basketball week, wizarding week, dance camp, Vement summer camp, themed weeks all summer, or good old-fashioned day camp weeks with no theme at all, just swimming, games, and arts and crafts. Plus, outdoor adventure camps with our partner Adventure East, in case you like paddling canoes or climbing rocks. Summer camp at the Bement School in Deerfield. It's all on the Bement website. Bement is a close-knit community of students from around the valley and across the globe. We learn from each other in the classroom, cheer for each other on the field, and celebrate each other on the stage. And we don't stop in the summer. Sign up for summer camp at bement.org. Give mom a gift with Roots from Winesick Nursery in Hadley. Treat her to a beautiful hanging plant for her porch, a perennial for her garden, or a flowering tree that blooms every year. Bring mom a fruit tree like apple, pear, or peach, or a rose bush to fill her vases. Visit Winesick's retail store for garden tools and unique gifts, colorful pottery, and exotic plants fresh from the greenhouse. Not sure what to get? Pick up a gift card. Visit Winesick Nursery on Route 9 in Hadley and at winesicknursery.com. We are the growers. Come to the source. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And welcome back to our show. We are so lucky in this region that uh, venerates culture. And uh, in particular, for purposes of our next guest's uh, theater, we have in East Hampton a fairly new theater company that uh, has a production that it is uh, happening uh, very soon, it is East Hampton Theater Company, um, and the production is called God of Carnage. And with it to speak to us about it is Michael Budnick and Eva Husson Stockhammer. And let's start with you, Michael. Hello, and thank you for joining us today. Hello, thanks for having us. And congratulations, we should say, on a really good piece in the Daily Hampshire Gazette, a new kid in town, East Hampton Theater Company, steps onto city arts scene with first production of God of Carnage, this a piece by Steve Ferrer. Thanks, congratulations, and thanks for, to Steve for writing it. Well, thank you very much, and thanks to the Gazette. Yeah, so first of all, tell us about the East Hampton Theater Company. Where do you do your work? Who's a member? Uh, and uh, what do you expect now and in the future? Absolutely. Well, in um, probably it was during the pandemic where we really started to think about, hey, uh, we many people are doing uh, community theater around the area. Some of us are traveling great distances to do community theater, but there is this burgeoning art scene in East Hampton and North Hampton, and there's no community theater currently um, in the Hamptons, really, uh, um, of what we envisioned. So it kind of took uh, shape during the pandemic. And in 2022, um, we launched the East Hampton Theater Company uh, to provide commu quality community theater production, community and regional theater right in East Hampton by people and for people from the Valley concentrating on the East Hampton community. And we have our first production coming up uh, the uh, second week of, it's actually next week, I can't believe it, uh, starting on Thursday called God of Carnage. And it's a wonderful um, play put together by uh, our group of theater veterans that are really concentrating on acting and humor and it's gonna be a blast. It sounds like it's gonna be a blast. And, and you're working in uh, this remarkable new performing arts space uh, and fine arts space in the, potentially in the future called City Space right there in the center of, of uh, East Hampton. Can you tell us about City Space and, and which parts of that space you're using? 
Absolutely. So City Space has uh, grand plans to renovate the entire old town hall, which is a beautiful facility. Uh, upstairs, um, they're building a 300 seat uh, theater in this gorgeous space uh, that was an old public meeting hall, uh, grand high ceilings, things like that. Um, so that will be hopefully done in 2026. In the meantime, they've uh, renovated a small performance space that used to be Flywheel Studios on the first floor. And that is an 80 seat black box theater. And it actually holds over 100 people for stand up performance at music performances as well. And since this is a small production, um, it is a what we call a straight play, not a musical, uh, with only four actors on stage. It was just a perfect facility to do this type of production. It really sounds it. So let's talk about this small production called God of Carnage with uh, Eva Husson Stockhammer. Eva, can you tell us about the production? I would love to. It is a wonderful play that's been written with many layers like an onion. And we first see these couples that have come together to discuss a problem between their two children. And that slowly starts to take them into other layers of their personal lives and their own views. And we go on that entire journey with them throughout. Um, and they, at some point, actually forget about why they're there. And that makes it very personal and a little bit raw sometimes. It's very, very well written, and the actors are bar none. It's a pretty raw title, God of Carnage. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah. Yes, well, it is, it is a comedy, I, I do want to mention. Um, God of Carnage refers to one of the uh, one of the um, uh, characters who's a, a realist, and he says, you know, we all strive to be civilized. We all strive to not be in this vein that might makes right that we we talk things out. But since the dawn of time, the God of Carnage has come in and kind of generated chaos among human beings and and have had them kind of revert to their more primitive selves. Uh, and, and, and tendencies as they try to solve problems in a civilized way. And that's what this one character believes, and that's why the title. Lord of the Flies by four actors, I guess. <laughs> a little bit. A tiny bit. So, Eva, tell us about the players. So, we have four amazing actors. Um, we have two couples, and they are um, sort of pitted against each other. They're all local now, um, which is magnificent. Some have relocated to here or moved here from other parts. I have to say I'm thrilled to be working with uh, Matthew O'Reilly. I had him in another life when he was in school. So to see him grow and to be able to work with him as an adult has been a great gift for me personally. Um, the young woman who plays Veronica it has been seen all over the stage um, in the Valley, and she is magnificent to work for, with. Um, also, uh, Tom, who is new to the area, actually has come back to the area, but new to us, um, has been so professional and so wonderful to work with. And then there's Maggie. Um, she is a teacher locally, and she brings something to Annette that no other actress that auditioned could have. So, Michael... Budnick, could you yes. tell us, if people want to get tickets, how do they get tickets? And tell us again Absolutely. when the they performances go, are going to be. Pretty easy. Go to EastHamptonTheater.com. That is our website. Uh, we have a website. We have a Facebook page, which is East Hampton Theater Company. Um, 
And uh, you go in there and it can be redirected. It'll see all the explanation of where it is and what it is. And um, I also do want to mention uh, that um, the actors that uh, Eva mentioned, Gilana Chalinski uh, is the one who plays Veronica. Tom Peachin is the one who plays Alan, the lawyer who has the matter of fact attitude about God of Carnage and Maggie McCauley are the other players. And um, Gilana is also one of the founding members of the East Hampton Theater Company, along with Jason Rose Langston. Uh, Manny Morales is our stage manager. Deb Jacobson is our props and front of house person. All of these folks are on the board, um, including Eva. And finally, tell us when the performances are. Absolutely. Uh, uh, our opening night is Thursday. The performance is at 7.30. And by the way, there's an arts walk that night. There's so much, so many different kinds of art going on in East Hampton on Thursday night. Um, and uh, it goes uh, all over East Hampton, including the City Arts Building. And so 7.30 Thursday, 7.30 Friday, 7.30 Saturday, and matinee on Sunday at 2 o'clock. This is next week? Oh, this is next week. That's correct. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yes. It starts May May 11th thank through you. 14th. Right. Please don't show up this week. We're in rehearsal. <laughs> and by right. the way, this is this is amazingly ready for this point in time in the rehearsal process. Uh, these folks could be on stage tomorrow. Um, and so everything else is just refinement and making sure we're working uh, well with the set and the props. But they're they're funny, amazing group of people. Let me tell you. And again, one more time, where do we get tickets? EastHamptonTheater.com. And there's there's probably a link on City Space's site as well. Uh, we've been speaking with Michael Budnick and um, with Eva Hassan Stockhammer of the East Hampton Theater Company. The production is God of Carnage. It sounds really fantastic, as is City Space, where it's going to be performed. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you for Thank you so us. much. We're going to be back talking with Hampshire Prides, Clay Pearson on tomorrow's March. It's very exciting. We'll be right back. If a tinker was my trade, would I still find you? I'd be carrying the pot you made, following behind. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. I'm Lisa Riley. Join me every Saturday at 9.30 a.m. here on WHMP as we share stories that shine a light on justice-involved individuals or just underdogs in the game of life, their struggles, their successes, and the many resources and opportunities available for those who are hustling to carve a new path and prove that failure isn't final. So unlock your future, rewrite your story. This is The Hustler Files. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Local farms are welcoming spring to the co-op. Asparagus popping up and ready to eat in bunches. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats and sausage, everything to kick off grilling season. In the co-op cheese department, welcome the maple season with maple-washed Willoughby, a delicious local cheese washed with Vermont maple liqueur. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. No matter your age, love is always a hot topic. And so is love that goes south and everything in between. I still die. I still die. 
Join Young at Heart at the Academy of Music Theater in Northampton on Sunday, May 7th at 3 p.m. for The Love Show, featuring an unexpected combination of songs. From Lizzo to Marvin Gaye and Rihanna to the Buena Vista Social Club, get ready to hear all about the dimensions and experiences of love and sex. If you want a lover, I'm your man. Young at Heart, backed by the fabulous Young at Heart Band, Sunday, May 7th at 3 p.m. at the Academy of Music in Northampton. Tickets are available through the Academy of Music box office. Call today or get them online at aomtheater.com. We welcome back to our show, Clay Pearson, who is the director, and I guess we could also call you founder of Hampshire Pride, although obviously yes, Northampton both. Pride goes back decades, many decades. Uh, tell us what is going to happen tomorrow for those who are just hearing about the revival of Hampshire Pride. Yeah, so um, tomorrow at 11 a.m., um, we're going to be starting a parade, and you can watch this parade anywhere on Route 9 between Old Ferry Road and Crafts Ave. And so um, after the parade ends, um, the last float is actually going to be um, Majestic Saloon. Anybody can enter the parade and march at the end. Um, and just make sure that you go in between the last float and the uh, police detail, because we don't want you behind there, because then that'll be open road. <laughs> um, and then after that, it's going to go um, walk the, the parade route all the way down into the festival, which is behind Thorns Marketplace. Um, in the Armory Street lot, and we've got uh, live uh, bands, we've got um, a mayoral proclamation, um, we've got motivational speakers, and a couple drag reviews. And those will start after the parade? Correct. Um, I think we've got a first band kind of uh, playing at noon that'll let everybody walk in and um, check them out. Yeah, well, you can be able to hear yes. where the music is coming from, Definitely. where we get to the end of the parade route. Yeah, we've also got um, a set of drummers that are going to be sitting um, kind of where Tuesday Market usually is, um, you know, playing their drums, getting you to, to, to come in. Really? A, dr a drum ensemble? Yes, we, uh, that's, uh, there's actually two. There's going to be another one that's in the parade. Um, it's uh, Mountain River Taiko, which is a Japanese-style drum uh, group that's going to be playing their drums through the parade on a float, too. Lots of entertainment. The parade route this year is interesting and I think so appropriate that because it begins out of town and then marches into town, which yes. is different. Yeah, well, it's actually what they did in 2009, which was the first really? Pride that I went to. And in 2009, they also had um, the festival right in this parking lot in uh, the Armory Street lot. So it's a uh, harken back to my first Pride. <laughs> okay. So... You have a number of people working with you. This is a committee. This is a joint, and it's complicated to put together Definitely. A, a parade, a march, a, a commemoration, a celebration mm -hmm. with a few thousand people, I would suspect. I hope. <laughs> I suspect. You're going to have great weather, too. Uh, tell us, if you would, a little bit about the team you put together or helped put together. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, we have a great, diverse team. Um, so... Uh, we've got Selena Almendarez. She is our social media um, maven. Oh, my goodness. I couldn't live without her. She can do some magic on our socials. Um, Kayla Abney. She is um, in charge of the vendor um, operation. So she's the one that's coordinated the 50 or so vendors that are going to be in the festival. 
Um, can't live without her. Crystal Dunn's going to be doing the parade coordinating, so she's going to get all the people lined up to get it all going on time. And we will meet down at Sheldon. Um, so only the people that have um, paid for entry into the parade will be at Sheldon Field, but anybody that wants to march after the parade, like I said, can just join the parade after it, it goes past you. Um, who else do we have on our team? Um, we have Samson Michaels. Um, oh, my gosh. They're doing all of the uh, the uh, volunteer coordinating, and we've got, I think, over 30 volunteers working this um, this organization. So, I, I mean, I can't ask for any more help from the, the community because they've just been so great. Um, and then we've got Lauren Winarski um, is going to be doing the entertainment, as well as um, Holly Cox, um, who's a trans woman and drag queen that's doing the drag... Um, the drag shows, so okay. Tell us a bit more about the entertainment. You've got bands. You've got you have yeah, performances. So got, you have recitals. I mean, this, this is a four-hour or more five-hour festival yeah. after the march. Yes. So we've got five hours. Um, the first uh, band that's going to be going up is Fostak, um, and then after that, we have a mayoral proclamation that we're going to be doing. Um, so Gina Louise is going to be giving the proclamation. I just picked it up today. Oh, it looks so good. Um, and then after that, we've got a drag review, um, with, uh, with Priscilla Porcelain and some other queens as well, and a king in there. And, um, then we've got Lorelai Arisis is going to be doing a motivational speaking, um, and then more drag because everybody loves drag. And uh, what else? We've got uh, Lexi Weege band is going to be going after that. And this is five hours of back-to-back-to-back-to-back entertainment. Yes, from noon to 5 p.m. And it will be at the Armory Street parking lot. Correct. Where a number number of groups have had these celebrations. You have a stage constructed yet? Um, It's going to be constructed tomorrow morning. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing's easy. No rest for the weary. So... In terms of outreach, can you give us some sense of uh, groups that have been involved, or, or is that oh, a... yeah. So we've got, um, I think, uh, we've got the mayor as well as our congressman, um, Jim McGovern, and uh, Senate, State Senator Joe Comerford have confirmed to be in the um, first uh, portion of the parade with a lot of city councilors from, uh, from the Northampton area. And then after that, we've got um, stilt walkers from Show Circus, and we've got um, from, I believe, groups two, 3 through 15 are all like uh, tri-county area um, GSAs and QSAs from local schools. So there's a lot of school groups that are going to be in there. It's really great to have the youth in. Um, and then there's all sorts of um, local businesses, um, as well as you know some, some local banks, um, real estate agents, et cetera. So um, a wide diversity. Um, sport, um, there's queer and gay um, sports groups. Uh, there's a dodgeball group that's going to be going. Um, a roller derby group. <laughs> there's a dodgeball yes. group. A roller I derby group. I run the dodgeball group, and I said I'm not doing this parade <laughs> for you guys. You got to do it by yourself. But I'm going to get you a spot in it. So you know, made sure that they got some space. So they're going to be throwing some balls around. Have you ever done anything like this before in your life? Oh no. Never. <laughs> I am uh, I am an engineer by training, so I know how to solve problems. Uh, 
And thank goodness I have a lot of people with much higher EQs than myself to uh, deal with all the, the, the personnel. This issues. is a human problem here yes. that you encounter and organizing all of this and yes. putting it all together in a short period of time, right? Yeah, nine weeks. Um, and like I said, that's not even the record. Somebody, I believe, uh, did it in five, five weeks, weeks in the 80s. <laughs> uh, but back then, you know, everybody sat at their desk in town so you could find them. Now in the work from home culture, you know, it takes a little bit more scouting around to get people. So, um, yeah, we, we just started um, Hampshire Pride as of uh, March 1st was our go live. Wow. The parade, the um, Pride Parade starts tomorrow at 11, is that right? Correct. Tomorrow um, we're going to start at 11 a.m. Um, and march all the way into town. And if you want to join, if we want to join the parade, we can after the last float goes yes. by. Yes, and then the we last can march. float. Yep, and that's going to be uh, the Majestic Saloon's float will be the last float, and then you're free to join in at that point. We leave it there. Clay Pearson, director of Hampshire Pride. Thanks Have so a much. great parade, a great, great day. I'm so excited for it. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. What, what I'm trying to communicate is that there are many, many layers of, of safety management in place at Eversource to ensure that we reduce as much risk as, as possible. Does the Bliss Street Station intentionally vent gas regularly? Because I can tell you that it vents gas. Pretty much every time I've gone to that area, I have smelled gas. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Grow Food Northampton helps you make the local food system better. This is Michael Skillcorn, Director of Programs. You can join us by shopping at Northampton Tuesday Market, getting a plot at our community garden in Florence, buying a farm share at Crimson and Clover or Sawmill Herb Farm. You can volunteer with us in our giving garden or participate in our neighborhood markets that bring the local food movement to underserved communities in Northampton. Get involved and support our work at growfoodnorthampton.com. E, I